Welcome to the 50th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 16, Section 20. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 20. In order to gain a stronger footing here, they add that baptism is a sacrament of penitence and faith. And as neither of these is applicable to tender infancy, we must beware of rendering its meaning empty and vain by admitting infants to the communion of baptism. But these darts are directed more against God than against us, since the fact that circumcision was a sign of repentance is completely established by many passages of Scripture. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Thus Paul terms it a seal of righteousness of faith. Romans 4, verse 11. Let God then be demanded why he ordered circumcision to be performed on the bodies of infants. For baptism and circumcision being here in the same case, they cannot give anything to the latter without conceding it to the former. If they recur to their usual evasion, that by the age of infancy spiritual infants were then figured, we have already closed this means of escape against them. We say then that since God imparted circumcision, the sign of repentance and faith to infants, it should not seem absurd that they are now made partakers of baptism unless men choose to clamor against an institution of God. But as in all his acts, so here also enough of wisdom and righteousness shines forth to repress the slanders of the ungodly. For although infants at the moment when they are circumcised did not comprehend what the sign meant, still they were truly circumcised for the mortification of their corrupt and polluted nature, a mortification at which they afterwards aspired when adults. In fine, the objection is easily disposed of by the fact that children are baptized for future repentance and faith. Though these are not yet formed in them, yet the seed of both lies hid in them by the secret operation of the Spirit. This answer at once overthrows all the objections which are twisted against us out of the meaning of baptism. For instance, the title by which Paul distinguishes it when he terms it the, quote, washing of regeneration and renewing, unquote, Titus 3, verse 5. Hence they argue that it is not to be given to anyone but to those who are capable of such feelings. But we, on the other hand, may object that neither ought circumcision, which is designated regeneration, to be conferred on any but the regenerate. In this way we shall condemn a divine institution. Thus, as we have already hinted, all the arguments which tend to shake circumcision are of no force in assailing baptism, nor can they escape by saying that everything which rests on the authority of God is absolutely fixed, though there should be no reason for it, but that this reverence is not due to pagan baptism or other similar things which are not recommended to us by the express word of God. They always remain caught in this dilemma. The command of God to circumcise infants was either legitimate and exempt from cavil or deserved reprehension. If there was nothing incompetent or absurd in it, no absurdity can be shown in the observance of pagan baptism. Section 21, the charge of absurdity with which they attempt to stigmatize it, we thus dispose of. If those on whom the Lord has bestowed his election after receiving the sign of regeneration depart this life before they become adults, he, by the incomprehensible energy of his spirit, renews them in the way which he alone sees to be expedient. Should they reach an age when they can be instructed in the meaning of baptism, they will thereby be animated to greater zeal for renovation, the badge of which they will learn that they received in earliest infancy in order that they might aspire to it during their whole lives. To the same effect are the two passages in which Paul teaches that we are buried with Christ by baptism, Romans 6, verse 4, and Colossians 2, verse 12. For by this he means not that he who is to be initiated by baptism must have previously been buried with Christ. He simply declares the doctrine which is taught by baptism and that to those already baptized. 
so that the most senseless cannot maintain from this passage that it ought to precede baptism. In this way, Moses and the prophets reminded the people of the thing meant by circumcision, which, however, infants received. To the same effect, Paul says to the Galatians, quote, As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, unquote. Galatians 3, verse 27. Why so? That they might thereafter live to Christ, to whom previously they had not lived. And though an adult's receiving of the sign ought to follow the understanding of its meaning, Yet, as will shortly be explained, a different rule must be followed with children. No other conclusion can be drawn from a passage in Peter on which they strongly found. He says that baptism is, quote, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, unquote. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. From this they contend that nothing is left for paedobaptism, which becomes mere empty smoke as being altogether at variance with the meaning of baptism. But the delusion which misleads them is that they would always have the thing to precede the sign in the order of time. For the truth of circumcision consisted in the same answer of a good conscience. But if the truth must necessarily have preceded, infants would never have been circumcised by the command of God. But he himself, showing that the answer of a good conscience forms the truth of circumcision, and at the same time commanding infants to be circumcised, plainly intimates that in their case, circumcision had reference to the future. Wherefore, nothing more of present effect is to be required in papal baptism than to confirm and sanction the covenant which the Lord has made with them. The other part of the meaning of the sacrament will follow at the time which God himself has provided. Section 22. Everyone must, I think, clearly perceive that all arguments of this stamp are mere perversions of Scripture. The other remaining arguments akin to these we shall cursorily examine. They object that baptism is given for the remission of sins. When this is conceded, it strongly supports our view. For, seeing we are born sinners, we stand in need of forgiveness and pardon from the very womb. Moreover, since God does not preclude this age from the hope of mercy, but rather gives assurance of it, why should we deprive it of the sign which is much inferior to the reality? The arrow, therefore, which they aim at us, we throw back upon themselves. Infants receive forgiveness of sins. Therefore, they are not to be deprived of the sign. They adduce the passage from the Ephesians that Christ gave himself for the church, quote, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, unquote. Ephesians 5, verse 26. Nothing could be quoted more appropriate than this to overthrow their error. It furnishes us with an easy proof. If by baptism Christ intends to attest the ablution by which he cleanses his church, it would seem not equitable to deny this attestation to infants who are justly deemed part of the church, saying they are called heirs of the heavenly kingdom. For Paul comprehends the whole church when he says that it was cleansed by the washing of water. In like manner from his expression in another place, that by baptism we are engrafted into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, we infer that infants, whom he enumerates among his members, are to be baptized in order that they may not be dissevered from his body. See the violent onset which they make with all their engines on the bulwarks of our faith. Section 23. They now come down to the custom and practice of the apostolic age, alleging that there is no instance of anyone having been admitted to baptism without a previous profession of faith and repentance. For when Peter is asked by his hearers, who were pricked in their heart, quote, What shall we do? Unquote, his advice is, Quote, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Unquote. Acts 2 verses 37 and 38. In like manner, when Philip was asked by the eunuch to baptize him, he answered, quote, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Unquote. Hence they think they can make out that baptism cannot be lawfully given to anyone without previous faith and repentance. If we yield to this argument, the former passage in which there is no mention of faith will prove that repentance alone is sufficient, and the latter which makes no requirement of repentance that there is need only of faith. They will object, I presume, that the one passage helps the other, and that both, therefore, are to be connected. I, in my turn, maintain that these two must be compared with other passages which contribute somewhat to the solution of this difficulty. There are many passages of Scripture whose meaning depends on their peculiar position, of this we have an example in the present instance. Those to whom these things are said by Peter and Philip are of an age fit to aim at repentance and receive faith. We strenuously insist that such men are not to be baptized unless the conversion and faith are discerned, at least in as far as human judgment can ascertain it. 
but it is perfectly clear that infants must be placed in a different class. For when anyone formerly joined the religious communion of Israel, he behoved to be taught the covenant and instructed in the law of the Lord before he received circumcision because he was of a different nation. In other words, an alien from the people of Israel with whom the covenant which circumcision sanctioned had been made. Section 24 Thus the Lord, when he chose Abraham for himself, did not commence with circumcision and the meanwhile concealing what he meant by that sign, but first announced that he intended to make a covenant with him, and, after his faith in the promise, made him partaker of the sacrament. Why does the sacrament come after faith in Abraham and precede all intelligence in his son Isaac? It is right that he who in adult age is admitted to the fellowship of a covenant by one from whom he had hitherto been alienated should previously learn its conditions. But it is not so with the infant born to him. He, according to the terms of the promise, is included in the promise by hereditary right from his mother's womb. Or, to state the matter more briefly and more clearly, if the children of believers without the help of understanding are partakers of the covenant, there is no reason why they should be denied the sign, because they are unable to swear to its stipulations. This undoubtedly is the reason why the Lord sometimes declares that the children born to the Israelites are begotten and born to him. Ezekiel 16, verse 20, and 23, verse 37. For he undoubtedly gives the place of sons to the children of those to whose seed he has promised that he will be a father. But the child descended from unbelieving parents is deemed an alien to the covenant until he is united to God by faith. Hence it is not strange that the sign is withheld when the thing signified would be vain and fallacious. In that view, Paul says that the Gentiles, so long as they were plunged in idolatry, were strangers to the covenant. Ephesians 2, verse 11. The whole matter may, if I mistake not, be thus briefly and clearly expounded. Those who in adult age embrace the faith of Christ, having hitherto been aliens from the covenant, are not to receive the sign of baptism without previous faith and repentance. These alone can give them access to the fellowship of the covenant, whereas children, deriving their origin from Christians, as they are immediately on their birth received by God as heirs of the covenant, are also to be admitted to baptism. To this we must refer the narrative of the evangelist, that those who were baptized by John confessed their sins. Matthew 3, verse 6. This example we hold ought to be observed in the present day. Were a Turk to offer himself for baptism, we would not at once perform the rite without receiving a confession which was satisfactory to the church. Section 25. Another passage which they adduce is from the third chapter of John, where our Savior's words seem to them to imply that a present regeneration is required in baptism. Quote, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Unquote. John 3, verse 5. See, they say, how baptism is termed regeneration by the lips of our Lord himself, and on what pretext, therefore, with what consistency, is baptism given to those who, it is perfectly obvious, are not at all capable of regeneration. First, they are in error in imagining that there is any mention of baptism in this passage, merely because the word water is used. Nicodemus, after our Savior had explained to him the corruption of nature and the necessity of being born again, kept dreaming of a corporeal birth, and hence our Savior intimates the mode in which God regenerates us. These, by water and the Spirit. In other words, by the Spirit who, in irrigating and cleansing the souls of believers, operates in the manner of water. By, quote, water and the Spirit, unquote, therefore I simply understand the Spirit, which is water. Nor is the expression new. It perfectly accords with that which is used in the third chapter of Matthew. Quote, he that cometh after me is mightier than I. Unquote. Quote, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Unquote. Matthew 3, verse 11. Therefore, as to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, is to confer the Holy Spirit, who in regeneration has the office and nature of fire, so to be born again of water and of the Spirit is nothing else than to receive the power of the Spirit, which has the same effect on the soul that water has on the body. I know that a different interpretation is given, but I have no doubt that this is the genuine meaning because our Savior's only purpose was to teach that all who aspire to the kingdom of heaven must lay aside their own disposition. And yet, were we disposed to imitate these men in their mode of cavilling, we might easily, after conceding what they wish, reply to them that baptism is prior to faith and repentance, since in this passage our Savior mentions it before the Spirit. This certainly must be understood as spiritual gifts, and if they follow baptism, I have gained all I contend for. 
But cavilling aside, the simple interpretation to be adopted is that which I have given, these, that no man until renewed by living water, that is, by the Spirit, can enter the kingdom of God. Section 26. This, moreover, plainly explodes the fiction of those who consign all the unbaptized to eternal death. Let us suppose, then, that as they insist, baptism is administered to adults only. What will they make of a youth who, after being imbued duly and properly with the rudiments of piety, while waiting for the day of baptism, is unexpectedly carried off by sudden death? The promise of our Lord is clear. Quote, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Unquote. John 5, verse 24. We nowhere read of his having condemned him who was not yet baptized. I would not be understood as insinuating that baptism may be contemned with impunity. So far from excusing this contempt, I hold that it violates the covenant of the Lord. The passage only serves to show that we must not deem baptism so necessary as to suppose that everyone who has lost the opportunity of obtaining it has forthwith perished. By assenting to their fiction, we should condemn all without exception whom any accident may have prevented from procuring baptism, how much soever they may have been endued with the faith by which Christ himself is possessed. Moreover, baptism being as they hold necessary to salvation, they, in denying it to infants, consign them all to eternal death. Let them now consider what kind of agreement they have with the words of Christ, who says that, quote, of such is the kingdom of heaven, unquote. Matthew 19, verse 14. And though we were to concede everything to them in regard to the meaning of this passage, they will extract nothing from it until they have previously overthrown the doctrine which we have already established concerning the regeneration of infants. Section 27. But they boast of having their strongest bulwark in the very institution of baptism which they find in the last chapter of Matthew, where Christ, sending his disciples into all the world, commands them to teach and then baptize. Then, in the last chapter of Mark, it is added, Quote, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, unquote. Mark 16, verse 16. What more, say they, do we ask, since the words of Christ distinctly declare that teaching must precede baptism, and assign to baptism the place next to faith? Of this arrangement, our Lord himself gave an example in choosing not to be baptized till his thirtieth year. In how many ways do they here entangle themselves and betray their ignorance? They err more than childishly in this, that they derive the first institution of baptism from this passage, whereas Christ had, from the commencement of his ministry, ordered it to be administered by the apostles. There is no ground, therefore, for contending that the law and rule of baptism is to be sought from these two passages as containing the first institution. But to indulge them in their error, how nerveless is this mode of arguing. Were I disposed to evasion, I have not only a place to escape, but a wide field to expiate in. For when they cling so desperately to the order of the words, insisting that because it is said, quote, Go, preach, and baptize, unquote, and again, quote, Whosoever believes and is baptized, unquote, they must preach before baptizing and believe before being baptized. Why may not we in our turn object that they must baptize before teaching the observance of those things which Christ commanded, because it is said, quote, Baptize, teaching whatsoever I have commanded you, unquote. The same thing we observed in the other passage in which Christ speaks of the regeneration of water and of the Spirit. For if we interpret as they insist, then baptism must take precedence of spiritual regeneration, because it is first mentioned. Christ teaches that we are to be born again, not of the Spirit and of water, but of water and of the Spirit. Section 28. This unassailable argument in which they confide so much seems already to be considerably shaken. But as we have sufficient protection in the simplicity of truth, I am unwilling to evade the point by paltry subtleties. Let them therefore have a solid answer. The command here given by Christ relates principally to the preaching of the gospel. To it, baptism is added as a kind of appendage. Then he merely speaks of baptism insofar as the dispensation of it is subordinate to the function of teaching. For Christ sends his disciples to publish the gospel to all nations of the world that by the doctrine of salvation they may gather men who were previously lost into his kingdom. But who or what are those men? It is certain that mention is made only of those who are fit to receive his doctrine. He subjoins that such, after being taught, were to be baptized, adding the promise, Whosoever believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Is there one syllable about infants in the whole discourse? 
What then is the form of argument with which they assail us? Those who are of adult age are to be instructed and brought to the faith before being baptized, and therefore it is unlawful to make baptism common to infants. They cannot at the very utmost prove any other thing out of this passage than that the gospel must be preached to those who are capable of hearing it before they are baptized, for of such only the passage speaks. From this let them, if they can, throw an obstacle in the way of baptizing infants. Section 29 But I will make their fallacies palpable even to the blind by a very plain similitude. Should anyone insist that infants are to be deprived of food on the pretense that the apostle permits none to eat but those who labor, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, would he not deserve to be scouted by all? Why so? Because that which was said of a certain class of men at a certain age, he rests and applies to all indifferently. The dexterity of these men in the present instance is not greater. That which everyone sees to be intended for adult age merely, they apply to infants, subjecting them to a rule which was laid down only for those of riper years. With regard to the example of our Savior, it gives no countenance to their case. He was not baptized before his thirtieth year. This is indeed true, but the reason is obvious, because he then determined to lay the solid foundation of baptism by his preaching, or rather to confirm the foundation which John had previously laid. Therefore, when he was pleased with his doctrine to institute baptism, that he might give the greater authority to his institution, he sanctified it in his own person, and that at the most befitting time, namely the commencement of his ministry. In fine, they can prove nothing more than that baptism received its origin and commencement with the preaching of the gospel. But if they are pleased to fix upon the thirtieth year, why do they not observe it, but admit anyone to baptism according to the view which they may have formed of his proficiency? Nay, even Servetus, one of their masters, although he pertinaciously insisted on this period, had begun to act the prophet in his twenty-first year, as if any man could be tolerated in arrogating to himself the office of a teacher in the church before he was a member of the church. Section 30. At length they object that there is not greater reason for admitting infants to baptism than to the Lord's Supper, to which, however, they are never admitted, as that scripture did not in every way draw a wide distinction between them, in the early church, indeed, the Lord's Supper was frequently given to infants, as appears from Cyprian and Augustine, but the practice justly became obsolete, for if we attend to the peculiar nature of baptism, it is a kind of entrance, and, as it were, initiation into the church, by which we are ranked among the people of God, a sign of our spiritual regeneration by which we are again born to be children of God, whereas, on the contrary, the supper is intended for those of riper years who, having passed the tender period of infancy, are fit to bear solid food. This distinction is very clearly pointed out in Scripture, for there, as far as regards baptism, the Lord makes no selection of age, whereas he does not admit all to partake of the supper, but confines it to those who are fit to discern the body and blood of the Lord, to examine their own conscience, to show forth the Lord's death, and understand its power. Can we wish anything clearer than what the Apostle says when he thus exhorts, quote, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, unquote. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Examination, therefore, must precede, and this it were vain to expect from infants. Again, quote, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, unquote. If they cannot partake worthily without being able duly to discern the sanctity of the Lord's body, why should we stretch out poison to our young children instead of vivifying food? Then what is our Lord's injunction? Quote, Do this in remembrance of me. Unquote. And what the inference which the Apostle draws from this? Quote, as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Unquote. How, pray, can we require infants to commemorate any event of which they have no understanding? How require them, quote, to show forth the Lord's death, unquote, of the nature and benefit of which they have no idea? Nothing of the kind is prescribed by baptism. Wherefore, there is the greatest difference between the two signs. This also we observe in similar signs under the old dispensation. Circumcision, which, as is well known, corresponds to our baptism, was intended for infants, but the Passover, for which the supper is substituted, did not admit all kinds of guests promiscuously, but was duly eaten only by those who were of age sufficient to ask the meaning of it. Exodus 12, verse 26. Had these men the least particle of soundness in their brain, would they be thus blind as to the matter so clear and obvious? Section 31. 
though I am unwilling to annoy the reader with a series of conceits which surveyed us, not the least among the Anabaptists, nay, the great honor of this crew, when girding himself for battle, deemed, when he had adduced them to these specious arguments, it will be worth while briefly to dispose of them. He pretends that as the symbols of Christ are perfect, they require persons who are perfect, or at least capable of perfection. But the answer is plain. The perfection of baptism, which extends even to death, is improperly restricted to one moment of time. Moreover, perfection, in which baptism invites us to make continual progress during life, is foolishly exacted by him all at once. He objects that the symbols of Christ were appointed for remembrance, that every one may remember that he was buried together with Christ. I answer that what he coined out of his own brain does not need refutation. Nay, that which he transfers to baptism properly belongs to the supper, as appears from Paul's words. Quote, let a man examine himself, unquote. Words similar to which are nowhere used with reference to baptism. Whence we infer that those who from knowledge are incapable of examination are duly baptized. His third point is that all who believe not in the Son remain in death. The wrath of God abideth on them. John 3, verse 36. And therefore, infants who are unable to believe lie under condemnation. I answer that Christ does not there speak of the general guilt in which all the posterity of Adam are involved but only threatens the despisers of the gospel who proudly and contumaciously spurn the grace which is offered to them. But this has nothing to do with infants. At the same time, I meet them with the opposite argument. Everyone whom Christ blesses is exempted from the curse of Adam and the wrath of God. Therefore, seeing it is certain that infants are blessed by him, it follows that they are freed from death. He next falsely quotes a passage which is nowhere found. Whosoever is born of the Spirit hears the voice of the Spirit. Though we should grant that such a passage occurs in Scripture, all he can extract from it is that believers, according as the Spirit works in them, are framed to obedience. But that which is said of a certain number, it is illogical to apply to all alike. His fourth objection is, as that which proceeds is animal. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46, We must wait the full time for baptism which is spiritual. For while I admit that all the posterity of Adam, born of the flesh, bear their condemnation with them from the womb, I hold that this is no obstacle to the immediate application of the divine remedy. Servetus cannot show that by divine appointment several years must elapse before the new spiritual life begins. Paul's testimony is that though lost by nature, the children of believers are holy by supernatural grace. He afterwards brings forward the allegory that David, when going up into Mount Zion, took with him neither the blind nor the lame, but vigorous soldiers. 2 Samuel 5, verse 8. But what if I meet this with the parable in which God invites to the heavenly feast the lame and the blind? And what way will Servetus disentangle this knot? I ask, moreover, whether the lame and the maimed had not previously served with David. But it is superfluous to dwell longer on this argument, which, as the reader will learn from the sacred history, is founded on mere misquotation. He adds another allegory, viz., that the apostles were fishers of men, not of children. I ask then, what does our Savior mean when he says that in the net are caught all kinds of fishes? Matthew 4, verse 19, and 13, verse 47. But as I have no pleasure in sporting with allegory, I answer that when the office of teaching was committed to the apostles, they were not prohibited from baptizing infants. Moreover, I should like to know why, when the evangelist uses the term, Greek word, Alpha, Nu, Theta, Rho, Omega, Pi, Omicron, Epsilon, Sigma, Anthropos, which comprehends the whole human race without exception. He denies that infants are included. His seventh argument is, since spiritual things accord with spiritual, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, infants, not being spiritual, are unfit for baptism. It is plain how perversely he rests this passage of Paul. It relates to doctrine. The Corinthians pluming themselves excessively on a vain acuteness, Paul rebukes their folly, because they still require to be imbued with the first rudiments of heavenly doctrine. Who can infer from this that baptism is to be denied to infants, whom, when begotten of the flesh, the Lord consecrates to himself by gratuitous adoption? His objection, that if they are new men, they must be fed with spiritual food, is easily obviated. By baptism, they are admitted into the fold of Christ, and the symbol of adoption is sufficient for them until they grow up and become fit to bear solid food. We must, therefore, wait for the time of examination which God distinctly demands in the sacred supper. His next objection is that Christ invites all his people to the sacred supper. But as it is plain that he admits those only who are prepared to celebrate the commemoration of his death, 
It follows that infants whom he honored with his embrace remain in a distinct and peculiar position until they grow up, and yet are not aliens. When he objects that it is strange why the infant does not partake of the supper, I answer that souls are fed by other food than the external eating of the supper, and that accordingly Christ is the food of infants, though they partake not of the symbol. The case is different with baptism by which the door of the church is thrown open to them. He again objects that a good householder distributes meat to his household in due season. Matthew 24, verse 45. This I willingly admit, but how will he define the time of baptism so as to prove that it is not seasonably given to infants? He moreover adduces Christ's command to the apostles to make haste, because the fields are already white to the harvest. John 4, verse 35. Our Savior only means that the apostles, seeing the present fruit of their labor, should bestir themselves with more alacrity to teach. Who will infer from this that harvest only is the fit time for baptism? His eleventh argument is that in the primitive church Christians and disciples were the same, but we have already seen that he argues unskillfully from the part to the whole. The name of disciples is given to men of full age, who had already been taught and had assumed the name of Christ, just as the Jews behoved to be disciples under the law of Moses. Still, none could rightly infer from this that infants, whom the Lord declared to be of his household, were strangers. Moreover, he alleges that all Christians are brethren, and that infants cannot belong to this class so long as we exclude them from the supper. But I return to my position first, that none are heirs of the kingdom of heaven but those who are the members of Christ, and secondly, that the embracing of Christ was the true badge of adoption in which infants are joined in common with adults, and that temporary abstinence from the supper does not prevent them from belonging to the body of the church. The thief on the cross, when converted, became the brother of believers, though he never partook of the Lord's Supper. Servetus afterwards adds that no man becomes our brother unless by the spirit of adoption, who is only conferred by the hearing of faith. I answer that he always falls back into the same paralogism, because he preposterously applies to infants what is said only to adults. Paul there teaches that the ordinary way in which God calls his elect and brings them to the faith is by raising up faithful teachers and thus stretching out his hand to them by their ministry and labors. Who will presume from this to give the law to God and say that he may not engraft infants into Christ by some other secret method? He objects that Cornelius was baptized after receiving the Holy Spirit. But how absurdly he would convert a single example into a general rule as apparent from the case of the eunuch and the Samaritans in regard to whom the Lord observed a different order, baptism preceding the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The fifteenth argument is more than absurd. He says that we become gods by regeneration, but that they are gods to whom the word of God is sent. John 10, verse 35, and 2 Peter 1, verse 4, a thing not possible to infant children. The attributing of deity to believers is one of his ravings, which this is not the proper place to discuss, but it betrays the utmost effrontery to rest the passage in the psalm, Psalm 82, verse 6, to a meaning so alien to it. Christ says that kings and magistrates are called gods by the prophet because they perform an office divinely appointed them. This dexterous interpreter transfers what is addressed by special command to certain individuals to the doctrine of the gospel, so as to exterminate infants from the church. Again, he objects that infants cannot be regarded as new men because they are not begotten by the word. But what I have said again and again I now repeat, that for regenerating us, doctrine is an incorruptible seed, if indeed we are fit to receive it. But when from knowledge we are incapable of being taught, God takes his own methods of regenerating. He afterwards returns to his allegories and says that under the law the sheep and the goat were not offered in sacrifice the moment they were dropped. Exodus 12, verse 5. Were I disposed to deal in figures, I might obviously reply first that all the firstborn on opening the matrix were sacred to the Lord. Exodus 13, verse 12. And secondly, that a lamb of a year old was to be sacrificed. Whence it follows that it was not necessary to wait for mature age, the young and the tender offspring having been selected by God for sacrifice. He contends, moreover, that none could come to Christ but those who were previously prepared by John, as if John's ministry had not been temporary. But to omit this, assuredly, there was no such preparation in the children whom Christ took up in his arms and blessed. Wherefore, let us have done with this false principle." He at length calls in the assistance of Trismegistus and the Sibyls to prove that sacred ablution are fit only for adults. 
see how honorably he thinks of Christian baptism when he tests it by the profane rites of the Gentiles and will not have it administered except in a way pleasing to Tresmagistus. We defer more to the authority of God who has seen it meet to consecrate infants to himself and initiate them by a sacred symbol, the significancy of which they are unable from knowledge to understand. We do not think it lawful to borrow from the expiations of the Gentiles in order to change in our baptism that external and inviolable law which God enacted in circumcision. His last argument is, if infants without understanding may be baptized, baptism may be mimicked and jestingly administered by boys in sport. Here let him plead the matter with God, by whose command circumcision was common to infants before they received understanding. Was it then a fit matter for ridicule or boyish sport to overthrow the sacred institution of God? But no wonder that these reprobate spirits, as if they were under the influence of frenzy, introduced the grossest absurdities in defense of their errors, because God, by this spirit of giddiness, justly avenges their pride and obstinacy. I trust I have made it apparent how feebly Servetus has supported his friends, the Anabaptists. Section 32 no sound man, I presume, can now doubt how rashly the church is disturbed by those who excite quarrels and disturbances because of paedobaptism. For it is of importance to observe what Satan means by all this craft, viz. to rob us of the singular blessing of confidence and spiritual joy, which is hence to be derived and insofar to detract from the glory of the divine goodness. For how sweet is it to pious minds to be assured not only by word, but even by ocular demonstration, that they are so much in favor with their Heavenly Father, that he interests himself in their prosperity. Here we may see how he acts towards us as a most provident parent, not ceasing to care for us even after our death, but consulting and providing for our children. Ought not our whole heart to be stirred up within us as David's was, Psalm 48, verse 11, to bless his name for such a manifestation of goodness. Doubtless the design of Satan in assaulting paedobaptism with all his forces is to keep out of view and gradually face that attestation of divine grace which the promise itself presents to our eyes. In this way, not only would men be impiously ungrateful for the mercy of God, but be less careful in training their children to piety, for it is no slight stimulus to us to bring them up in the fear of God and the observance of his law when we reflect that from their birth they have been considered and acknowledged by him as his children. Wherefore, if we would not maliciously obscure the kindness of God, let us present to him our infants, to whom he has assigned a place among his friends and family, that is, the members of the church. Chapter 17 of the Lord's Supper and the Benefits Conferred by It There are fifty sections. Section 1. After God has once received us into his family, it is not that he may regard us in the light of servants, but of sons, performing the part of a kind and ancient parent, and providing for our maintenance during the whole course of our lives. And, not contented with this, he has been pleased by a pledge to assure us of his continued liberality. To this end, he has given another sacrament to his church by the hand of his only begotten Son, viz. a spiritual feast, at which Christ testifies that he himself is living bread, John 6, verse 51, on which our souls feed for a true and blessed immortality. Now, as the knowledge of this great mystery is most necessary and in proportion to its importance, demands an accurate exposition, and Satan, in order to deprive the church of this inestimable treasure, long ago introduced first mists and then darkness to obscure its light and stir up strife and contention to alienate the minds of the simple from a relish for this sacred food, and in our age also has tried the same artifice. I will proceed, after giving a simple summary adapted to the capacity of the ignorant, to explain those difficulties by which Satan has tried to ensnare the world. First, then, the signs are bread and wine, which represent the invisible food which we receive from the body and blood of Christ. For as God, regenerating us in baptism, engrafts us into the fellowship of his church, and makes us his by adoption, so we have said that he performs the office of a provident parent in continually supplying the food by which he may sustain and preserve us in the life of which he has begotten us by his word. Moreover, Christ is the only food of our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to him that, refreshed by communion with him, we may ever and anon gather new vigor until we reach the heavenly immortality. But as this mystery of the sacred union of Christ with believers is incomprehensible by nature, it exhibits its figure and image in visible signs adapted to our capacity, nay, by giving it, as it were, earnests and badges, he makes it as certain to us as if it were seen by the eye. 
the familiarity of the similitude giving it access to minds however dull and showing that souls are fed by Christ just as the corporeal life is sustained by bread and wine. We now therefore understand the end which this mystical benediction has in view, these to assure us that the body of Christ was one sacrifice for us, so that we may now eat it, and eating, feel within ourselves the efficacy of that one sacrifice, that his blood was once shed for us, so as to be our perpetual drink. This is the force of the promise which is added. Quote, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, Unquote. Matthew 26, verse 26, etc. The body which was once offered for our salvation we are enjoined to take and eat, that while we see ourselves made partakers of it, we may safely conclude that the virtue of that death will be efficacious in us. Hence he terms the cup, the covenant in his blood. For the covenant which he once sanctioned by his blood, he in a manner renews, or rather continues, insofar as regards the confirmation of our faith, as often as he stretches forth his sacred blood as drink to us. Section 2. Pious souls can derive great confidence and delight from this sacrament as being a testimony that they form one body with Christ, so that everything which is his they may call their own. Hence it follows that we can confidently assure ourselves that eternal life of which he himself is the heir is ours, and that the kingdom of heaven into which he has entered can no more be taken from us than from him. On the other hand, that we cannot be condemned for our sins, from the guilt of which he absolves us, seeing he has been pleased that these should be imputed to himself as if they were his own. This is the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness. Having become with us the Son of Man, he has made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to the earth, he has prepared our ascent to heaven. Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred to us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Section 3. To all these things we have a complete attestation in this sacrament, enabling us certainly to conclude that they are as truly exhibited to us as if Christ were placed in bodily presence before our view are handled by our hands. For these are words which can never lie nor deceive. Take, eat, drink. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for the remission of sins. In bidding us take, he intimates that it is ours. In bidding us eat, he intimates that it becomes one substance with us. In affirming of his body that it was broken, and of his blood that it was shed for us, he shows that both were not so much his own as ours, because he took and laid down both, not for his own advantage, but for our salvation. And we ought carefully to observe that the chief and almost the whole energy of the sacrament consists in these words, It is broken for you, it is shed for you. It would not be of much importance to us that the body and blood of the Lord are now distributed, have they not once been set forth for our redemption and salvation? Wherefore they are represented under bread and wine, that we may learn that they are not only ours, but intended to nourish our spiritual life. That is, as we formerly observed by the corporeal things which are produced in the sacrament, we are by a kind of analogy conducted to spiritual things. Thus, when bread is given as a symbol of the body of Christ, we must immediately think of this similitude. As bread nourishes, sustains, and protects our bodily life, so the body of Christ is the only food to invigorate and keep alive the soul. When we behold wine set forth as a symbol of blood, we must think that such use as wine serves to the body the same as spiritually bestowed by the blood of Christ, and the use is to foster, refresh, strengthen, and exhilarate. For if we duly consider what profit we have gained by the breaking of his sacred body and the shedding of his blood, we shall clearly perceive that these properties of bread and wine, agreeably to this analogy, most appropriately represent it when they are communicated to us. Section 4. Therefore it is not the principal part of a sacrament simply to hold forth the body of Christ to us without any higher consideration, but rather to seal and confirm that promise by which he testifies that his flesh is meat indeed, and his blood drink indeed, nourishing us unto life eternal, and by which he affirms that he is the bread of life of which whosoever shall eat shall live forever. I say, to seal and confirm that promise, and in order to do so, it sends us to the cross of Christ where that promise was performed and fulfilled in all its parts. For we do not eat Christ duly and savingly unless as crucified, while with lively apprehension we perceive the efficacy of his death. When he called himself the bread of life, he did not take that appellation from the sacrament as some perversely interpret, 
but such as he was given to us by the Father, such he exhibited himself when becoming partaker of our human mortality, he made us partakers of his divine immortality. When offering himself in sacrifice, he took our curse upon himself, that he might cover us with his blessing. When by his death he devoured and swallowed up death, when in his resurrection he raised our corruptible flesh, which he had put on to glory and incorruption. Section 5. It only remains that the whole become ours by application. This is done by means of the gospel, and more clearly by the sacred supper, where Christ offers himself to us with all his blessings, and we receive him in faith. The sacrament, therefore, does not make Christ become for the first time the bread of life, but while it calls to remembrance that Christ was made the bread of life, that we may constantly eat him, it gives us a taste and relish for that bread and makes us feel its efficacy. For it assures us, first, that whatever Christ did or suffered was done to give us life, and secondly, that this quickening is eternal. By it we are ceaselessly nourished, sustained, and preserved in life. For as Christ would not have been the bread of life to us if he had not been born, if he had not died and risen again, so he could not now be the bread of life were not the efficacy and fruit of his nativity, death, and resurrection eternal. All this Christ has elegantly expressed in these words, Quote, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Unquote. John 6, verse 51. Doubtless intimating that his body will be as bread in regard to the spiritual life of the soul, because it was to be delivered to death for our salvation, and that he extends it to us for food when he makes us partakers of it by faith. Wherefore he once gave himself that he might become bread when he gave himself to be crucified for the redemption of the world, and he gives himself daily when, in the word of the gospel, he offers himself to be partaken by us, inasmuch as he was crucified when he seals that offer by the sacred mystery of the supper, and when he accomplishes inwardly what he externally designates. Moreover, two faults are here to be avoided. We must neither by setting too little value on the signs dissever them from their meanings to which they are in some degree annexed nor by immoderately extolling them, seeing somewhat to obscure the mysteries themselves, that Christ is the bread of life by which believers are nourished unto eternal life. No man is so utterly devoid of religion as not to acknowledge, but all are not agreed as to the mode of partaking of him. For there are some who define the eating of the flesh of Christ and the drinking of his blood to be, in one word, nothing more than believing in Christ himself. But Christ seems to me to have intended to teach something more express and more sublime in that noble discourse in which he recommends the eating of his flesh, these, if we are quickened by the true partaking of him, which he designated by the terms eating and drinking, lest anyone should suppose that the life which we obtain from him is obtained by simple knowledge. For as it is not the sight but the eating of bread that gives nourishment to the body, so the soul must partake of Christ truly and thoroughly, that by his energy it may grow up into spiritual life. Meanwhile, we admit that this is nothing else than the eating of faith, and that no other eating can be imagined. But there is this difference between their mode of speaking and mine. According to them, to eat is merely to believe, while I maintain that the flesh of Christ is eaten by believing because it is made ours by faith, and that that eating is the effect and fruit of faith. Or, if you will have it more clearly, according to them, eating is faith, whereas it rather seems to me to be a consequence of faith. The difference is little in words, but not little in reality. For although the Apostle teaches that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, Ephesians 3, verse 17, no one will interpret that dwelling to be faith. All see that it explains the admirable effect of faith, because to it it is owing that believers have Christ dwelling in them. In this way, the Lord was pleased by calling himself the bread of life, not only to teach that our salvation is treasured up in the faith of his death and resurrection, but also by virtue of true communication with him, his life passes into us and becomes ours, just as bread, when taken for food, gives vigor to the body. Section 6. When Augustine, whom they claim as their patron, wrote that we eat by believing, all he meant was to indicate that that eating is of faith and not of the mouth. This I deny not. But I at the same time add that by faith we embrace Christ, not as appearing at a distance, but as uniting himself to us, he being our head and we his members. I do not absolutely disapprove of that mode of speaking. I only deny that it is a full interpretation if they mean to define what it is to eat the flesh of Christ. I see that Augustine repeatedly used this form of expression as when he said, quote, unless ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, unquote. 
is a figurative expression in joining us to have communion with our Lord's passion and sweetly and usefully to treasure in our memory that his flesh was crucified and wounded for us. Also, when he says, quote, These 3,000 men who were converted at the preaching of Peter, Acts 2, verse 41, by believing, drank the blood which they had cruelly shed, unquote. But in very many other passages he admirably commends faith for this, that by means of it our souls are not less refreshed by the communion of the blood of Christ than our bodies with the bread which they eat. The very same thing is said by Chrysostom, quote, Christ makes us his body, not by faith only, but in reality, unquote. He does not mean that we obtain this blessing from any other quarter than from faith. He only intends to prevent anyone from thinking of mere imagination when he hears the name of faith. I say nothing of those who hold that the supper is merely a mark of external profession, because I think I sufficiently refuted their error when I treated of the sacraments in general. See chapter 14, section 13. Only let my readers observe that when the cup is called the covenant in blood, Luke 22, verse 20, the promise which tends to confirm faith is expressed. Hence it follows that unless we have respect to God and embrace what he offers, we do not make a right use of the sacred supper. Section 7. I am not satisfied with the view of those who, while acknowledging that we have some kind of communion with Christ, only make us partakers of the Spirit, omitting all mention of flesh and blood, as if it were said to no purpose at all that his flesh is meat indeed and his blood is drink indeed, that we have no life unless we eat that flesh and drink that blood, and so forth. Therefore, if it is evident that full communion with Christ goes beyond their description, which is too confined, I will attempt briefly to show how far it extends before proceeding to speak of the contrary vice of excess. For I shall have a longer discussion with these hyperbolical doctors who, according to their gross ideas, fabricate an absurd mode of eating and drinking and transfigure Christ after divesting him of his flesh into a phantom. If indeed it be lawful to put this great mystery into words, a mystery which I feel and therefore freely confess that I am unable to comprehend with my mind, so far am I from wishing anyone to measure its sublimity by my feeble capacity. Nay, I rather exhort my readers not to confine their apprehension within those two narrow limits, but to attempt to rise much higher than I can guide them. For whenever this subject is considered, after I have done my utmost, I feel that I have spoken far beneath its dignity. And though the mind is more powerful in thought than the tongue in expression, it too is overcome and overwhelmed by the magnitude of the subject. All then that remains is to break forth in admiration of the mystery, which it is plain that the mind is inadequate to comprehend or the tongue to express. I will, however, give a summary of my view as I best can, not doubting its truth and therefore trusting that it will not be disapproved by pious breasts. Section 8. First of all, we are taught by the scriptures that Christ was from the beginning the living word of the Father, the fountain and origin of life, from which all things should always receive life. Hence John at one time calls him the word of life, and at another says that in him was life, intimating that he, even then pervading all creatures, instilled into them the power of breathing and living. He afterwards adds that the life was at length manifested when the Son of God, assuming our nature, exhibited himself in bodily form to be seen and handled. For although he previously diffused his virtue into the creatures, yet as man, because alienated from God by sin, had lost the communication of life and saw death on every side impending over him, he behoved in order to regain the hope of immortality to be restored to the communion of that word. How little confidence can it give you to know that the word of God from which you are at the greatest distance contains within himself the fullness of life, whereas in yourself, in whatever direction you turn, you see nothing but death. But ever since that fountain of life began to dwell in our nature, he no longer lies hid at a distance from us, but exhibits himself openly for our participation. Nay, the very flesh in which he resides, he makes vivifying to us, that by partaking of it we may feed for immortality. Quote, I, unquote, says he, quote, and that bread of life, unquote. Quote, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, unquote. Quote, and the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, unquote. John 6, verses 48 and 51. By these words he declares not only that he is life, inasmuch as he is the eternal word of God who came down to us from heaven, but by coming down gave vigor to the flesh which he assumed that a communication of life to us might thence emanate. Hence too he adds that his flesh is meat indeed and that his blood is drink indeed. By this food believers are reared to eternal life. 
The pious, therefore, have admirable comfort in this, that they now find life in their own flesh, for they not only reach it by easy access, but have it spontaneously set forth before them. Let them only throw open the door of their hearts, that they may take it into their embrace, and they will obtain it. Section 9. The flesh of Christ, however, is not such power in itself as to make us live, saying that by its own first condition it was subject to mortality, and even now, when endued with immortality, lives not by itself. Still, it is properly said to be life-giving, as it is pervaded with the fullness of life for the purpose of transmitting it to us. In this sense, I understand our Savior's words as Cyril interprets them. Quote, as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Unquote. John 5, verse 26. For there properly he is speaking not of the properties which he possessed with the Father from the beginning, but of those with which he was invested in the flesh in which he appeared. Accordingly, he shows that in his humanity also fullness of life resides, so that everyone who communicates in his flesh and blood at the same time enjoys the participation of life. The nature of this may be explained by a familiar example. As water is at one time drunk out of the fountain, at another drawn, at another led away by conduits to irrigate the fields, and yet does not flow forth of itself for all these uses, but is taken from its source, which, with the perennial flow, ever and anon sends forth a new and sufficient supply. So the flesh of Christ is like a rich and inexhaustible fountain, which transfuses into us the life flowing forth from the Godhead into itself. Now, who sees not that the communion of the flesh and the blood of Christ is necessary to all who aspire to the heavenly life? Hence those passages of the Apostle. The church is the, quote, body, unquote, of Christ. His, quote, fullness, unquote. He is, quote, the head, unquote. Quote, from whence the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, unquote. Quote, maketh increase of the body, unquote. Ephesians 1, verse 23, and 4, verses 15 and 16. Our bodies are the, quote, members of Christ, unquote. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. We perceive that all these things cannot possibly take place unless he adheres to us wholly in body and spirit. But the very close connection which unites us to his flesh, he illustrated with still more splendid epithets when he said that we, quote, are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, unquote. Ephesians 5, verse 30. At length, to justify that the matter is too high for utterance, he concludes with exclaiming, quote, This is a great mystery, unquote. Ephesians 5, verse 32. It were therefore extreme infatuation not to acknowledge the communion of believers with the body and blood of the Lord, a communion which the Apostle declares to be so great that he chooses rather to marvel at it than to explain it. Second 10. The sum is that the flesh and blood of Christ feed our souls just as bread and wine maintain and support our corporeal life, for there would be no aptitude in the sign did not our souls find their nourishment in Christ. This could not be did not Christ truly form one with us and refresh us by the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. But though it seems an incredible thing that the flesh of Christ, while at such a distance from us in respect of place, should be food to us, let us remember how far the secret virtue of the Holy Spirit surpasses all our conceptions, and how foolish it is to wish to measure its immensity by our feeble capacity. Therefore, what our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive, these, that the Spirit truly unites things separated by space, that sacred communion of flesh and blood by which Christ transfuses his life into us, just as if it penetrated our bones and marrow, he testifies and seals in the supper, and that not by presenting a vain or empty sign, but by there exerting the efficacy of the Spirit by which he fulfills what he promises. And truly the thing there signified he exhibits and offers to all who sit down at that spiritual feast, although it is beneficially received by believers only, who receive this great benefit with true faith and heartfelt gratitude. For this reason the Apostle said, Quote, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. There is no ground to object that the expression is figurative and gives the sign the name of the thing signified. I admit indeed that the breaking of bread is a symbol, not the reality. But this being admitted, we duly infer from the exhibition of the symbol that the thing itself is exhibited, for unless we would charge God with deceit, we will never presume to say that he holds forth an empty symbol. Therefore, if by the breaking of bread the Lord truly represents the partaking of his body, there ought to be no doubt whatever that he truly exhibits and performs it. 
the rule which the pious ought always to observe is, whenever they see the symbols instituted by the Lord, to think and to feel surely persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is also present. For why does the Lord put the symbol of his body into your hands but just to assure you that you truly partake of him? If this is true, let us feel as much assured that the visible sign is given us and seal of an invisible gift as that his body itself is given to us. Section 11. I hold then, as has always been received in the church and is still taught by those who feel aright, that the sacred mystery of the supper consists of two things. The corporeal signs, which presented to the eye, represent invisible things in a manner adapted to our weak capacity, and of the spiritual truth, which is at once figured and exhibited by the signs. When attempting familiarly to explain its nature, I am accustomed to set down three things, a thing meant, the matter which depends on it, and the virtue or efficacy consequent upon both. The thing meant consists in the promises which are in a manner included in the sign, by the matter, or substance, I mean Christ, with his death and resurrection. By the effect, I understand redemption, justification, sanctification, eternal life, and all other benefits which Christ bestows upon us. Moreover, though all these things have respect to faith, I leave no room for the cavil that when I say Christ is conceived by faith, I mean that he is only conceived by the intellect and imagination. He is offered by the promises, not that we may stop short at the sight or mere knowledge of him, but that we may enjoy true communion with him. And indeed, I see not how anyone can expect to have redemption and righteousness and the cross of Christ and life in his death without trusting first of all to true communion with Christ himself. Those blessings could not reach us did not Christ previously make himself ours. I say then that in the mystery of the supper, but the symbols of bread and wine, Christ, his body, and his blood are truly exhibited to us, that in them he fulfilled all obedience, in order to procure righteousness for us, first, that we might become one body with him, and secondly, that being made partakers of his substance, we might feel the result of this fact in the participation of all his blessings. Section 12. I now come to the hyperbolical mixtures which superstition has introduced. Here Satan has employed all his wiles, withdrawing the minds of men from heaven and imbuing them with the perverse error that Christ is annexed to the element of bread. And first, we are not to dream of such a presence of Christ in the sacrament as the artificers of the Romish court have imagined, as if the body of Christ, locally present, were to be taken into the hand and chewed by the teeth and swallowed by the throat. This was the form of palinode which Pope Nicholas dictated to Berengarius in token of his repentance, a form expressed in terms so monstrous that the author of the gloss exclaims that there is danger if the reader is not particularly cautious that he will be led by it into a worse heresy than was that of Berengarius. Peter Lombard, though he labors much to excuse the absurdity, rather inclines to a different opinion as we cannot at all doubt that it is bounded according to the invariable rule in the human body and is contained in heaven where it was once received and will remain till it return to judgment so we deem it altogether unlawful to bring it back under these corruptible elements or to imagine it everywhere present and indeed there is no need of this in order to our partaking of it since the lord by his spirit bestows upon us the blessing of being one with him in soul body and spirit the bond of that connection therefore is the spirit of christ who unites us to him and is a kind of channel by which everything that christ has and is is derived to us for if we see that the sun in sending forth its rays upon the earth to generate cherish and invigorate its offspring in a manner transfuses its substance into it why should the radiance of the spirit be less in conveying to us the communion of his flesh and the blood Wherefore, the scripture, when it speaks of our participation with Christ, refers its whole efficacy to the Spirit. Instead of many, one passage will suffice. Paul, in the epistle to the Romans, Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, shows that the only way in which Christ dwells in us is by his Spirit. By this, however, he does not take away that communion of flesh and blood of which we now speak. It shows that it is owing to the Spirit alone that we possess Christ wholly and have him abiding in us. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 3730, 
by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.